And welcome back to Getting Handsy by Low Country Hands. I want to say thank you to everyone who listened to the last episode. We love hearing your feedback, and um, we just appreciate everything you've done. My name's Bob, and I'm here with Philip and our guest, Mackenzie. What's up, man? How's it doing, Philip? I'm going well. Uh, I think similar to last time. I'm just enjoying this weather, the time change. We got a, got a, was really productive in the yard today. Uh, so it's pretty bright outside right now and sitting here doing the, doing the podcast. So uh, just, just loving this time of year. What about you? Uh, it's been good. You know, the weather's been great here. Pollen's starting to fall here in Georgia, which is um, not my best friend. But the weather, you know, like I said, has been great. The kids have been able to get outside. Um, it's just glad to put up the sweatshirts and getting ready for the heat. But beach weather, we love it. Um, just love the sunshine. Awesome. Well, uh, well, guys, we have a special guest today, uh, a previous protege of mine, Mackenzie Lott. Um, he came to me as a level two student. I was pretty impressed with him. I was able to hire him and then had the pleasure of working with him for three years. He attained his CHT as soon as he was able to, and then uh, was able to secure a uh, position at a hand and upper extremity clinic much closer to home. He was commuting one hour each way for the three years that he worked for me. So uh, I definitely cannot blame him for his decision to, to, to get back home. Uh, but I was glad for the time that, uh, that he was uh, working with me proud of where he is in his career and excited to have him on today. So welcome, Mackenzie. Uh, how are you doing? Oh, good. Uh, thanks for having me. I've uh, listened to the past couple uh, podcasts. And I really enjoy it. But yeah, like you said, I'm at like a standalone outpatient facility seeing uh, shoulders, elbows, wrists and hands. And I've been there for about three years now uh, as well. So earlier this week, I posted a graphic video of a surgeon reducing a both bone fracture. There was anesthesia involved, of course, but it got me thinking, you know, what did what did people do years ago? So I started kind of looking around and I found where they had accounts of distal radius fractures dating back at least 5000 years in ancient Egyptian case reports, which is pretty cool if you ask me. Ancient scrolls described manipulating a fractured arm until the arm was straight. So they would do that, and then they would apply a splint of wood and rolls of linen. How do y'all feel about that kind of um, custom fabrication? Do y'all want to use grease and honey? Hey, if it works. <laughs> so, Might be so, a little cheaper than some of our thermoplasts. Could be, could be. Treatment options have definitely evolved since then, so we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that. The upper extremity is designed in a way to transfer loads, you know, generally the radius takes about 80% and the ulna takes about 20% when loaded. When this is disrupted, we have a problem such as a disradius fracture. You know, the fractures can occur across the lifespan. Rehab of the hand states, the younger populations, uh, the culprit is usually a high impact, you know, motor vehicle accident or sports. And then in the older population, it's usually a fall on that outstretched hand, that foosh type injury, a low impact type thing. You know, there are oftentimes other injuries that occur with this, such as styloid fractures, ligament injuries, and or a TFCC injury. The surgeon's goal is to restore the radial length, the volar tilt, radial inclination, and articular reduction at both the radiocarpal and distal radial ulnar joints. So, again, restoring the proper biomechanics is their part. That's what they need to do in order for us to do our part. Our job is to restore balance and pain-free range of motion and strength required for daily tasks. Today, we'll discuss different courses of treatment to achieve these goals. Like I said before, when we started this thing, we wanted it to be something that you could take back to the clinic and use next week. It's not going to be an in-depth anatomy um, podcast, but we are going to talk about, you know, problems we run into in the clinic and how we address that, which hopefully can help you down the line. So, you know, most things you read 
they would agree that 40% of flexion and 40% of extension is 40 degrees, sorry, of flexion and extension with a combined 40 degrees of radial deviation and ulnar deviation is what you need for most daily functional tasks. So that's our goal. That's kind of where we're standing. So, Mackenzie, I know that you said that you are at a standalone clinic. How, how quickly are you getting referrals? How are they coming into your clinic for this type of fracture? It can be both conservative or, you know, post-operative. Um, ORF is probably more common than a conservative treatment, especially early on. So when are you seeing these referrals come in? Right. Um, for ORIF, it can be anywhere from uh, four weeks out to maybe even six. Um, and for conservatives, I see a lot of conservative uh, treatments. So I'm getting those anywhere from eight to 10 to sometimes 12, depending on the quality of bone healing. Okay. Yeah. How about you, Philip? Uh, yeah, pretty variable, you know, uh, post-op probably a lot sooner. Uh, sometimes I get those in, you know, 10 to 14 days ish. Um, definitely very limited in what you can do that early, but, um, and then, and then conservative, uh, four to six weeks, depending on bone quality and, and, and how much immobilization was really needed. And if they were any, uh, any concomitant injuries, that sort of thing. So, um, yep. It, does that fit with your timeline? What, what, what do you say? Yeah. I mean, you know, four to six weeks, like you said, with conservative is usually what we get. And then as far as like a ORF, we are seeing, and, and specifically like a volar plate, it ranges. We've got some surgeons that send three to five days post-op. We have some that send at two weeks and then we have some that wait till six weeks. So there, there's a variation there. And, and at each step, you know, we're doing something a little different because like you said, the bone healing. So, you know, taking that time to figure out when you're getting that patient is going to be really big because that's going to determine what you can do. Kind of like Mackenzie said, if he gets somebody at six to eight weeks, he's going to approach that differently than if Philip gets them at 14 days. So when you get these guys, they come in, um, Philip, I know you said you're getting them a little sooner than Mackenzie. What does your typical evaluation process consist of? Uh, you know, the standard, you know, standard to start with range range of motion, goniometry, edema measurements, um, appropriate, uh, testing of grip and pinch, depending on when you get them sensation, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. Um, but really what I look at is, um, you know, I like looking at joint mobility um, appropriately, uh, intrinsic and extrinsic flexibility and mobility. Um, you know, I look for intended movements, you know, without compensation. Can they move what they're trying to move? I can't stand when I ask somebody to move the wrist and it's all fingers or vice versa. Or, you know, you do supination and it's trunk, it's trunk rotation. So, you know, can they do intended mo- uh, motions? Uh, is it true joint stiffness or is it pain induced? Um, how much you know, NMR techniques are going to be needed. Um, I try to look at, you know, what is the, what's the root cause? So if the fingers are limited in motion, is it, is it joint or soft tissue tightness? Uh, is it edema related? Is it generalized? Uh, was the, um, was the cast too long and occluded the DPC, which made just terribly tight MPs that didn't need to be tight. So just kind of going in all that. I mean, you know, you always do the standards, but uh, then I just kind of look at to the whys as to why they're tight. You know, I like to educate people right from the beginning and say, Hey, make a fist. And if it's 50%, you know, I'll just show them their normal hand. What are their normal motions that they're trying to get at the MP versus the PIP versus the DIP level. 
And it kind of gives them an area. So when they're doing their stretches and their exercises where they need to emphasize their focus. So, yeah, no, that's great. How about you, McKenzie? Uh, yeah. So sometimes even, you know, when I said I get them 10 to 12 weeks, like sometimes they'll come earlier, but they won't get the cast off till then. So then I'll just work on like, uh, digital range of motion but uh for typical evaluations i'll you know i'll do sensation range of motion uh grip pinch we even throw in a quick dash or something to see you know what activities of daily living are uh most affected and then uh uh as what philip was saying see you know most of the time i expect supination and extension to be the most limited motions but uh sometimes depending on the uh, break it can be different but uh just try to see what what joint stiff intrinsic extrinsic tightness uh and then trying to see how they make a fist and if they're starting to initiate with the mps rather than the ips and uh things like that yeah no that's good just recreating that normal movement pattern uh so, like I said, a lot of mine are coming in pretty early, so there's only so much you can do because normally we're cutting them out of their post-operative dressing. So one thing I've, I've started to do later in my career is let's, let's always look at their posture. How are they coming in? Are they guarded? Or, you know, do they look scared? Do they just come in all, you know, confident? You know, I, I take all of that into account. I try to get a full history. You know, age is going to play a big part. Are they young? Are they old? Because that gives me a little bit of an idea of where I'm going to start, you know, what's their hand dominance? If they're right-handed and that's the hand they hurt, we're going to have to figure out some things to make them functional at home during the time that they can't use it. Um, I look into a living environment and, you know, I, I start asking them a lot of questions about life. I talk a lot. So I try to kind of connect with the patient just to kind of build that rapport and gain confidence and let them, you know, just see that I'm there to help them because you, you have to remember one thing I get the students to, to familiarize with and, and think about is it's not a diagnosis. I know that's what you're treating, but it's also a human on the other side of that. So you have to treat that aspect too. So again, I take the method of injury. How did this happen? And then their occupation. What, what do they need to get back to? Not just work, but you know, what are their leisure activities? What are they having trouble with at home? Like McKenzie said, a quick dash. I like to look into that. Um, and then I like to talk to them about other things, you know, what, what do you enjoy doing? Because if I can find a driving force as far as meaningful activities to kind of push them towards, I can make my goals that way and hopefully get them to buy into treatment. Because if I have an adherent patient, I've got a, got a better chance. And, you know, again, the pain range of motion edema, all of those are great. Um, I think uh, across the line, most people are getting that. One thing I do check into as far as range of motion, I check into your normal orthogonal plane flexion extension but then also check into mid carpal motion you can't really measure it um we do something we call the wild west but i check that out because you need coupled motion to do functional activities and i feel like that's left out of a lot of treatment sessions and then um i think it's a little bit different probably for mckenzie but we we do make a we do fabricate a lot of orthoses so that's usually on everybody's first visit we're gonna we're gonna fabricate that education for the patient is huge like philip said I want to make sure they know what they're doing at home. So it's not a question of if they're doing it wrong or right, because that carryover is going to be big. And in today's world, we have cell phones just recorded. If they can't figure it out, record them doing it while you talk them through it. And they have that in their hand all the time. So those are kind of the things I look at. I'm sure that y'all look at a lot of those as well, but uh, just the more I go, the more I try to look at the person 
rather than when I first started, you know, like, oh my God, I got a diagnosis. What do, what do I do with that diagnosis? So that's kind of the way I approach it, which kind of leads into, you know, do, do you follow protocols or do you use them as guidelines? Philip? Uh, I think I'm definitely a guideline guy. I mean, I, I love them. You know, um, we've talked before about you get that one thing that you're like, oh man, I hadn't seen this in five years or what is this, you know, definitely hit a protocol. Uh, just make sure I'm not doing something too early or too late. Um, uh, but you know, use them as guidelines. You know, I know there's always phrases in therapy. You say, Hey, it's, it's like a, like a recipe. You know, the first time you do a recipe, you may stick to it. And then you say, ah, I really need more garlic or I need more of this. And so, um, and that's, and that's really, you know, kind of what you do. And then after, after so many years, it, it really becomes clouded. You know, I kind of follow, uh, almost with anything and everything I do two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. I mean, and there's things that I expect at those, at those times. And that's really what I try to do. Um, piggybacking on, on something that you said just a few minutes ago, you know, trying to read the person. I think that's so funny, you know, like, uh, uh, I think giving exercises and HEPs are, are fantastic. I mean, some people need them, uh, but reading the person, some people, you know, you could give them three exercises or 12 exercises. They're not doing them at all. Exactly. You know, and then you have the other people that say, how many times, how many times there's so much education that goes into that first day. And I just say, please don't get caught up with the number of repetitions. What I want you to get across to you is please just move. This is what you need to do. Those intended motions I talk about. If you're trying to move it, make sure you're moving what you're supposed to. So reading the person, I think that kind of goes uh, you know, a long way. The people that are hyper, um, you know, focused on those numbers i try to dissuade that real quickly because i just i just want to make sure that they're, that they're moving so and i thought that was interesting that you said that so uh yeah reading the person is super important yeah but, yeah i fully believe yeah. that how about you so back to you mckenzie protocols or guidelines oh guidelines uh i just get them from you know no one person's the same no injuries the same so you know if they're doing good you know i'll try to I can go, I feel, and younger, you know, I feel more confident and being a little bit more aggressive with them and rather than somebody that took a while for their bone to heal and older in age, I usually tend to be a little bit more conservative uh, as well. Yeah, I think that uh, Rehab of the Hand did a great job in the newer version as far as like laying out phases versus a set protocol. And I'm glad they're starting to move away from that, which they're moving away from a lot of things. They're not using like Smith's fracture, Cole's fractures. They're trying to just get away from names. And I think that they're doing a great job at getting away from set protocols and letting basically how the patient is doing guide your process. Um, you know, like, like McKenzie said, you're not going to approach an 18 year old the same way you're going to approach an 80 year old. You know, it, it's a person, not a diagnosis. You always have to remember that aspect of it. A uh, question about, you know, we talked about protocol versus guideline. When do y'all typically discharge an orthosis for this, for this type of um, injury? Again, I think it's pretty much by tissue response. You know, uh, it's funny, you know, our docs, sometimes they don't like to do the x-ray at the five-week mark because six weeks kind of standard as to what the research shows. You're going to see some good uh, calcification start develop, developing. So, um, uh, but every once in a while, you know how appointments get switched around. I mean, if that person goes at five weeks and a doctor says, hey, real early calcification, then we might start the winning process. You know, I want them, I tell them it's a necessary evil. Uh, that, you know, you need to have it when you're up and about. If there's kids and animals around, you're around your friends, especially if you're younger. But if you're on the couch doing nothing, then you need to have it off. And so um, and, and working on your motions and really just 
what's your environment like? And if you're in a low risk environment, then have it off. And if you're, you know, wear it otherwise. So I, I think it's really tissue response, but, um, uh, and then the people that are dependent, again, reading that person, I want to try to get them out sometimes sooner, as long as the uh, bony integrity can, can handle it. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I kind of do the same thing. Philip said, like if they're, if it's still questionable, we don't know. I tell them, you know, if you're just sitting there at the house, not doing a whole lot, take it out. Don't, you know, don't stay in it 24 seven. Cause you're going to get stiff obviously, but, uh, just have them kind of wean it, uh, in a controlled environment. Yeah. And then also, you know, are there concomitant injuries? Um, this is something I, some, I wanted to talk about on this. I know that really for the purpose of this podcast, I mean, the distal radius fracture is such a broad topic. You know, I, I'm kind of, these are, you know, isolated distal radius fractures. Um, you know, if it was uh, some type of carpal instability or something, I'm going to treat it like a carpal instability as opposed to a distal radius fracture. So I'm going to take the, you know, the, the more aggressive injury and treat it at that. But, but we do know that, you know, some, some uh, research shows that there's upwards of 60% or greater associated TFCC tears with the, um, with the distal radius fracture, but that does not mean that any or all of them are going to be symptomatic. And so, um, you know, I, I think that also influences all these, uh, these treatment strategies. And I'll encourage them to use it with dressing, with brushing their teeth, especially if it's their dominant hand. If it's their non-dominant hand, then I'm going to be specific about giving them a task to do to make them use that non-dominant hand because ordinarily they wouldn't use it anyway to brush their teeth. So I try to give them something to kind of focus on that a little bit. I think that's all good. Um, it's about the trust, yeah. you know, and I mean, how many times do you hear I was so, this isn't going to hurt me. And I said, well, it might hurt you, but it's not going to damage you. I mean, the, the you know, purpose of therapy is not pain, but it's also to move you and, and, you know, getting people over that fear of saying, I had no idea that I could move this. The doctor just told me to, you know, just to wiggle my fingers, you know, so, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, moving them along. But sometimes after that first one or two sessions, you know, you can see the people that just, you know, just take off. Cause they're like, I had, I had no idea I can do this. I mean, I'm only four or five weeks out from surgery or three weeks out from surgery. So yeah, you know, you have that plate in there to make you strong. So let's, let's take advantage of it. So, yeah. So along with all of that, uh, of course, everybody's not going to do great. You're going to have patients that really struggle, no matter how well you educate them, no matter how perfect your home exercise program is, no matter how perfect the surgeon says he did, they just, they have trouble. So what are some, what are the most common complications you've noticed at your clinic and what are we doing to address them? Mackenzie, you want to take it? Uh, sure. I'll, uh, I would say just residual, uh, like digital stiffness, not being able to make like a complete fist and, uh, just hanging up, like hanging up on the last maybe 30 to 20%. Uh, so sometimes I try to get them, you know, to make a proper hook and a full fist and follow it up, you know, same as like a carpal tunnel three to five times each three to five times a day. And, uh, then they kind of realize what they're doing and I have them look at their other hand and see how they make a fist and then see that they're initiating with the MPs and then the IPs are out. Uh, so that's not mechanically efficient. And then they kind of, then they realize, Oh, okay, that is how I'm doing it. So through that as well as, uh, just extrinsic and intrinsic type, uh, tightness stretches as well 
Yeah, I mean, seeing is believing, man. I mean, that that's a powerful thing. How about you, Philip? Yeah, you know, uh, that's it. You know, the the residual stiffness and pain. You know, everybody who has pain typically doesn't do as well because they're not moving. And you get those people that come in and have no pain, and they seem to always do better. But like you just said a minute ago, you're always going to have the ones that uh, that do poorly. Uh, and I think the the key is is being able to recognize those early and just know that they're going to need a uh, little bit extra TL, TLC um, and that there could be something else going on. But uh, yet to McKenzie's point, you know, that residual finger stiffness, you know, this is where I might uh, implement some splinting options to try to facilitate that normal movement pattern. Um, when McKenzie was with us, we used a lot of what we call uh, active redirection orthoses. I think some of the other uh, uh, big wigs in our profession uh, refer to it as a relative motion orthosis, if some of you have, have heard that term before. But it's basically if you're a metacarpaler and you're initiating that motion with the MPs, can you block them to make them use uh, IPs? I know uh, Judy Colditz uses it with um, with her CMMS method, to, uh, but she uses it more with like a um, uh, the traditional plaster of Paris where she really lock that hand down and and um, and, and neuromuscular uh, re-educate these, these uh, patients like that. So uh, getting that re- residual stiffness out and making proper mechanics, that's probably first and foremost of what is important when you see these types of deficits. Yeah. So like for us, we're, like I said, we're seeing some of these three to five days out. Um, stiffness has set in a little bit, but a lot of times that, that initial stiffness is due to edema. And, um, you know, uh, it's really hard to get the patient to understand that, you have to move to get rid of the edema. And so what I do to show them is basically I'll have them just lay their non-operative hand down on the table and I'll just kind of reach back behind their hand and just kind of pinch on the dorsum aspect and pull that skin up and say, Hey, look, look at that loose skin. Now make a fist. When they make a fist, that skin pulls out of your hand. And I show them, I say, Hey, that's what's pushing the fluid out of your hand. If you can't make a fist, then your fluid is building up there. And so what does it do? It puts you in MP extension and it starts to flex the IPs, everything we don't want it to do. It's just a, it's just a negative reaction. So getting the swelling down is big. And I use a couple of different things. I've used kinesio taping. Uh, one that I really love is just in a wrap, um, just using cling, like a two inch cling, leaving the palm open. And I don't do it tight. I just do it when they go to make a fist. It's just a little extra push on the dorsum of the hand. And I'll also make, and forgive me if the name's wrong, it's called a crush box. I'll take the sponges and just cut up different sizes into like a stockinette and I will staple the one side, put it on the back of the hand and wrap it in there. And it does wonders for these patients. Um, so catching that in the beginning is huge. What Do y'all see any kind of edema? Yes. And I was just wanted to say that you just made so many lymphedema therapists um, uh, rejoice for what you just said of cling versus uh, traditional Coban. Um, people use it too tight. These early, early things do not need it. You know, a cling, a, a, a low compressive wrap is so much more effective anyway. So anyway, I think you just got some props, man. Uh, I've seen great results with it. Try it. If you have something else, please reach out, let us know. And if we're just talking like straight finger stiffness, like McKenzie said, if you're getting to that last little bit, then I'm always, I'm right away. I'm thinking intrinsic tightness and I'm going to look into it. And there have been so many that, I show them the proper way to stretch this. And by the time they leave treatment, they're like, oh my God, I can make a fist. And you look them in the face and you go, guess what? You can do this at home. And it's like mind blown. 
So I always check that. I do check extrinsic tightness. Um, I make sure they're doing their exercises the way I want them to. Like when we're doing wrist PREs, going into extension, I don't want them to have the hand open. I want them to have a fist. So we get just the wrist movers, you know, just small things like that, paying attention to what we're actually doing. Um, Allison Taylor has the wedges. I don't know if y'all heard of these. I think they're great. Um, it's basically, she has where you're just restoring the balance back in and for a faster recovery. If you can restore balance and correct alignment, there's usually not pain with motion. So then we have, uh, you know, a patient that is more willing to move. So if you, if you haven't seen those, definitely check out her website. Um, I haven't talked to her about them or anything like that. I've just seen them used and I've used some at the clinic and I really like the idea behind them. So yeah, go ahead. Uh, listen, something that you said and Mackenzie hit on it early too. Um, uh, there's an old saying in the, th- that I heard years ago and it's uh, assumed that every hand is intrinsically tight until proven otherwise. Yeah. Okay. But that is so, that is so important, especially when you have that, that, that edema that won't go, you know, you, you expect the three to 10 days, 14 days edema after these things. But when it progresses past that point, you can, you can almost guarantee that you're going to have some intrinsic tightness. And, and if that, like you say, if, if you lack 20% motion at that terminal fist, especially when you just can't get those DIPs to come down, but they can flex in, uh, independently or individually, then uh, then don't forget about those intrinsics. And you can use that active redirection or relative motion or whatever you want to call it. That's a fantastic way to kind of to get that actively. So you're not feeling like you're, you know, passively hammering on those intrinsics all the time. Uh, guys, don't forget about that, too. So uh, active hooks and passive hooks are are both important, but the active is is uh, probably more important. Yeah, and that's probably one of the biggest things I've seen missed when we have students there, you know, when they're trying to, I try to, I try not to spoon feed them. What do you see going on? Think it through. What is it? And a lot of times I see, even with new therapists, they miss that intrinsic tightness. And I think just, just thinking about it is, you know, is power. Like you said, assume that it's there until proven otherwise. Uh, the next thing I see is not just finger stiffness, but wrist. So what, do, what happens? We immobilize a patient. And then we expect their wrist not to get stiff. Well, of course it's going to get stiff. So like I said before, you had the radiocarpal joint, then you had the midcarpal joint. You got to have both planes moving. And uh, like I said, always check it with what I call the Wild West. I want to see how that midcarpal joint is moving because I hardly ever see people address that. But, but it's needed. So one thing that we like to do in the clinic is we use just one of those little 99-cent balls. It, it looks about the size of a basketball. And I like to do just straight over the top flexion extensions with it, with the palm staying on it just to make sure they're not cheating. And then I like to have them make just like a heart upside down heart. And then when they wrap around, they're getting that mid carpal, they're getting motion there. And it's, it's crazy how you can say, I'm doing so good this way, but I can't quite do this or quite do that. And then you check mid carpal and guess what? It's not moving. So do y'all ever see any of that? McKenzie? Oh yeah. Yeah, I do. I see some, and then I see the uh, most common thing I see is the, uh, you hit on it earlier, was the digital extension with the wrist extension. So they're compensating, and if they make a fist with it, they gain 20 degrees. So another one of those seeing is believing things. How well does the carpal, the, pro- the proximal carpal row move against the radius? Are we getting glide there, volar and dorsal? If not, then I'm going to manipulate that to get glide. You know, how well is how well is the, you know, scaphoid moving? 
you know, what is my STT joint looking like? You know, I'm checking all of that stuff and I'm going to manipulate it if I need to. Uh, not everybody needs that. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, they're, they're just tight. It is extrinsic tightness, but sometimes it is a capsular pattern. I'm always looking into that. And then the other thing I'm looking into is the forearm. You know, you have, you fell. Well, it didn't just stop at the wrist. It went up through the elbow and up through the shoulder. You know, you have patients come in and say, my shoulder's killing me. Well, well, yeah, you fell on an outstretched arm. So I look into the DRUJ and the PRUJ. Is there a malalignment? If there's a malalignment, I'm not going to get good rotation. So I've got to figure out how to get the alignment correct. And I may use different things, you know, different straps and stuff to try to help me get there. Or I may, I may have to manipulate the radial head to try to get it there. It's just a bunch of different things to take into consideration. That pronation that we're doing all day, that's what we do now. That's how we live. You know, back in the day, hunters, gatherers, you know, you lived in a supinated world, but we don't do that anymore. And maybe that's part of why we can't supinate as well, because most of our day we're trying to get to pronation to live we're not necessarily trying to get to supination anymore yeah you know uh, uh earlier in my career <clears throat> i think i was all you know like a passive motion you know you kind of do all this i didn't use i didn't do a whole lot of joint modes uh uh especially in the wrist and stuff and it may be because i didn't understand them and i didn't really know uh the importance of some of those radiocarpal versus mid-carpal uh, mobilities but there's some man, there's so much information and so many good courses with you know, uh, uh, different different places you can go to learn these things and do them effectively. Um, you know, YouTube, if you trust the site, can be a fantastic, you know, uh, way to kind of learn some of this stuff. But, uh, yeah, you know, and I got really good results with that. When the time is needed, holy moly, you can sit there and passively stretch something for six or eight weeks. And if it is a joint mobility issue and you do some mobilizations, the amount of motion you see in such a short period of time makes me question what I did in some of the earlier years. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, uh, but that's, that's, you, you got to learn. And then, you know, until your eyes get open, you don't, you don't really realize how some of the, how important some of this stuff yeah. is, but. And then, you know, like you said earlier, static progressive um, orthoses, I love those. I will use them, but I, I don't use them on everybody. It's got to be the correct patient. So um, I do really like that. I don't use it nearly as much on the forum as I used to, knowing that it's mostly a malalignment pattern. So I, I don't want to cause more of an issue. So I, I've stopped using it there. Um, go ahead. Hey, hey um, Mackenzie, how, how, how often can you, uh, how often do you get to make thermoplasts and, um, uh, how much of a process is that in your clinic now? Uh, it's less frequent from when I was with you. It's just sometimes if you get them later, they don't, it isn't as acute. Yeah, maybe the need yeah, isn't right. there. I don't for do some it quite them. as often because they're not coming to me that early to where most of the time when they come, it's just in a like off the shelf uh, wrist cock up that, that their surgeon gave them. So, with that, McKenzie, how soon are you implementing a strengthening program being that you said some of them come, you know, eight to 10 weeks? Right. Um, well, first, I like to see how they're moving and uh, focus on that, getting the movement back to somewhat as normal as possible. And if they, they start progressing with that, then automatically I feel like strength's going to come back uh, quicker than if they were uh, – moving incorrectly and i just want to reinforce that just to get some strength oh yeah absolutely i know that um you know a study with valdez and her colleagues found that basically decreased range of motion of the fingers had the strongest correlation to decrease function 
mm-hmm. via the patient-related rated wrist and hand evaluation after a dysrhagia fracture. So, I mean, that's exactly what you're saying. If they can't move, I mean, they're not going to strength. They're not going to have function. So, I mean, that is very right. important. That's pretty good. How about you, Philip? How often are you starting that, or when are you starting that? Uh, you know, like we said, depends on the injury. Uh, you know, I listen. I don't mind initiating a grip strengthening program at Me four either. weeks. Uh, depending on what it is, if it's ORIF, then it's stable and all that stuff. But sometimes my, 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 if I give them a gripper, it might just be one band. I mean, equivalent to, you know, one to two pounds, depending if I might stretch the rubber band out first before I put it on my gripper, but really just to make a functional uh, gripping pattern, fisting pattern. So, you know, strengthening is so funny. You know, you're so scared if you do that, if the protocol says don't strengthen until eight weeks, well, I'm not going to load them up with a wrist dumbbell you know, or, uh, you know, they've been complaining of ulnar-sided wrist pain and give them some, you know, res- resistive forearm rotation. Um, so just kind of take it as it is. And, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of um, proximal strengthening, including the, 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 the periscapular musculature, the rotator cuff. Uh, I love doing that on so many of my injuries, especially in these like tendonitis that you just get that your insidious onset. I think that that is an upstream thing. But when you're talking about distal radius fracture, sometimes you're limited on that because you can't load the, you know, the distal radius and so, or, or the wrist area. So uh, probably if true strengthening, six to eight weeks, but I, I will, I will do grip and especially like a, a short arc. So I, I consider it less of like a big dynamic grip pattern, but kind of a static grip, short arc. I like to do that. Yeah. Out. So like, I, you know, if a patient's doing well four weeks, I, I, if their pain is low, I may start them out just, you know, just isometrics, you know, kind of progress them from there. I mean, I let pain be our guide, you know, therapy shouldn't necessarily hurt. You're going to have some discomfort, some pain, but there's a difference in that and like injuring yourself. And so that's a, that's something you need to, you know, also educate your patient on and, you know, kind of leading into the next question, we were talking about those joint lobes. Uh, I find the bread and butter after those joint lobes is neuromuscular rehab. A lot of, a lot of people just kind of skip over this and I think it's becoming a hot topic now. So more and more people are using it, but um, do you see it more and more in the clinic now? Yeah, I mean, you know, just because of the courses I've gone to and some, you know, really high high quality courses, and it and it again opens your eyes to it. So, um, uh, definitely, it helps. You know, you get that, you get the joint motion. You you know, you you pick up twenty degrees in the clinic one day, and then they come back and they don't have it, and you say, "Well, gosh dang it, we got the twenty degrees. How come?" Well, if you don't know how to use it, you're not going to retain it. So, yeah, I think that's where the neuro rehab can come in to uh, reestablish those normal movement patterns. Uh, and, and to get it going. So what, uh, what uh, techniques do you like to use um, for your neuro rehab? So like if I, if I'm going to do like a, a proximal row, just kind of, just kind of work on the whole proximal row to get flexion or extension, then I like to send them home with basically like a strap. I'll cut it, you know, maybe, maybe a quarter of an inch, you know, half an inch, something like that thick. And say we're working on flexion, I may have them, you know, strap under that proximal row, basically holding the strap at the top, almost like a hammock. And so as they flex, Mm -hmm. as they flex the wrist, I'm gently pulling up to glide that row dorsally. So they're doing that at home to kind of a little self glide. And it'd be the opposite if I was trying to get extension. 
So I have them do that. So I like to follow all of my joint moves with neuro rehab because you, you have to remap the brain. I mean, everybody's seen the homunculus and how big the hand is on there. And once you lose something, I mean, it, you really get what I think Susan Stralka termed as smudging and you start to, you forget how to use it. And so that's, you know, she likes to use graded motor imagery followed by mirror therapy to kind of work on those things. And I've used them in the clinic. So that is another thing. Um, I just do different things to challenge them. The true balance. Have y'all used that? Mm, no, I have not. It's uh, it's pretty cool. I would I would recommend getting it. Um, it's I think you get it on Amazon. It's pretty cheap, but it's pretty challenging. But I mean, just the slightest wrist movements to make that thing balance. So they're they're having to basically just focus and use it. Uh, I like a lot of ball bouncing. Just take a tennis ball, bounce it to the ground, and come back up. I mean, what is that? That's mid carpal straight down and back. I mean, you don't turn your forearm all the way down and just go straight, you know, basically cardinal flexion extension. I mean, it's a coupled pattern. So just something as simple as that, bouncing that, and that may progress to, you know, one pound ball against the wall, almost like you're shooting a basketball, just back and forth. Um, so I like to use mm -hmm. that a lot. The the flex bar, I think, is great. Uh, kind of like your... Well, I like the flex yeah. bar because it promotes a dart throwers exactly. versus a straight line right. flexion extension arm. Exactly. So, yeah, so I'm using the weighted ball the same way. So I'm standing close to the wall and they're tossing the ball and catching it. So it's that it's the same motion. So, um, I got you. you know, and then, like I said, the flex bar, which, you know, all of these can be graded. So I really like that. And then the body blade, like you were talking, Philip, just the whole chain. You have to hit everything because it, it, it's out of whack. I mean, like I said, it wasn't just a single isolated fracture right there. I mean, you took the force all the way up through. So, you know, we have to retrain everything. And then one new thing that I've been doing, um, well, it's been for a little while now, but is that joint position sense. Like, so I'm going to butcher the name. It's like Karanonopoulos maybe found that the um, joint position sense testing along with total grip force to be the most meaningful test for assessing sensory motor status and for explaining functional disability to pain for female patients after, you know, a distal radius fracture. So you take a goniometer. You move the wrist. Okay, we're going to go to 30 degrees of extension. I'm going to measure it. Okay, now I'm going to take you all the way back passively, all the way full flexion. Okay, match that. So they try to match that degree, and then we'll measure it. We'll see where they are. It's just different things like that. You know, uh, we used the ABC ball. Just took a, a ball and wrote ABCs all over it, and they have to, you know, manipulate it with their fingers, move it around. And I like to make them not pick their thumb up. They have to glide the thumb around it. So, I mean, I use it with, you know, CMC stuff too, but – all of these things, I just, I really love them. Um, and if you don't have one, the rice bucket, I love the rice bucket. It's, uh, I use it a lot. I put it on the Instagram page a lot, but it's just a great overall just activity. So um, I'll I tell you one I okay. like that's so simple that it's probably, I mean, you know, it is a neuro re-ed, but I don't use it for that. I use it for a passive wrist extension, but you know, uh, closed chain. Oh yeah. So, I mean, how many times do you, do you passively stretch a flexion? And, and they tolerate it and you go to extension and they're just binding up in the back of the, mm -hmm. you know, the dorsal aspect of the carpus. And so, you know, you plant the hand and I, I explain it like this. I say, we have, um, we have gotten up off the floor and out of a chair our entire lives. It's very simple for us to rotate around our wrists. And when you look at it on the table, I mean, it's 20, 25 degrees better, but it incorporates all those, you know, carpal mobilities in the proper it reestablishes reestablishes normal mechanics. Uh, so I've always considered it, you know, up until just a couple of years ago, just a passive stretch. But really, it's a I mean, it, it is a um, 
uh, neuromuscular re-ed. And so sometimes when I get them to match that extension, you know, to max it out, I say, now just pick your hand up off the table and see if you can hold it. Those fingers are still extended like McKenzie was talking about, but it's amazing what they can hold then because they've kind of retrained it a little bit. So, oh, right. And I use like a little handheld for proprioception of the wrist. It's a handheld uh, wire maze. So you remember those toys that you had or you see little kids oh, have yeah. Yeah. The, at the doctor's office? It's kind of like that, and it's got a washer on it, and they have to manipulate it and move it through uh, through that, and I make them do it for a few minutes at a time. And you can really tell because instead of holding the – handle firm they start sliding it around with their fingers you know and compensating like that and you got to watch for shoulder motion too so i tell them i'm like that's that's not your wrist moving that's your fingers or hey that's your shoulder yeah so oh good idea yeah and philip like you were saying that closed chain i like to use putty on the table i'll grade the putty and i'll have them flatten it out with the palm of their hand because like you said we've gotten up all our life using our hands we're not going to stop so i have them kind of grade it that way so yeah i like all of that stuff Bob, I want to I want to back up a back little bit. Up. I have a question. I want right. <laughs> I want to ask you guys because this is a very common injury. We've all probably treated it hundreds of times. What is the most memorable method of injury that someone has had that's coming to your clinic for you to treat, Bob? Patient came in. We're going through, like I said, that whole history, and I'm talking, and she says, "Well, you know, I'm a kindergarten teacher." So, okay, I'm thinking, you know, she got she got injured at school or whatever. She was on a pogo stick. And so we're talking and we kind of get to going. I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's normal. And it turns out it was the end of the year faculty party and a pogo stick was involved. <laughs> and so, so that's why she was embarrassed. So that was a that was a pretty interesting um, episode. I really enjoyed that one. Trying to rack my brain. Uh, the only one that's coming up is uh, this person was trying to. Uh, cranker lawnmower the uh the grass was super high she bent down to see why it wasn't cranking and there was a big old uh rattlesnake up under her lawnmower and she started running away from it and fell <laughs> so uh yeah that's pretty good i think uh, i think i would have broken both of yeah. them so uh <laughs> the snake yeah, yeah. i asked her if the snake caught up to her after she fell she said oh no <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I imagine not uh Man, there's so many memorable ones, you know, some just horrible, horrible injuries. But this one stuck out. It was early in my career and it has not been topped. But he was boiling crabs and he had all the crabs in his little kiddie pool sitting right there, ready to go into the water. And he tripped, fell backwards, foosh injury. He couldn't get out. So he had (laughs) over 100 crab bites, pinches, whatever you want to say. And he could not get out of the tub. So he eventually... He basically had to roll out. What <laughs> made it so funny was I dictated this. And at the time, uh, the lady who transcribed my dictations was in the next room. Well, this was like two days later. She was getting to it. And all of a sudden, we just heard this uncontrollable, what turned out to be laughter, but we didn't know what it was. And she got to the, anyway, she got to the mechanism mechanism of injury and, and, and we knew exactly who it was. So, <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, that was pretty yeah. good to add some comedy to <laughs> yeah. it. All right, man. Any take home points for the listeners? Take on points. Yeah. Uh, listen, just the radius fracture, really big topic. I can't believe that we were able to cover some of what we did in just the 45 minutes or so. Uh, definitely so much that was left on the table. But uh, take on points, 
you know, just, just look at it like a, like a, um, uh, a person and how it's uh, impacting that person. Uh, don't discount uh, some of your joint mobilities and, um, you know, different techniques like closed chain wrist extension are so important. Um, I reckon that's some pretty good points. What about you? I know you have some good points to offer. All right. Yeah. My big thing is, like you said, re- remember you're treating a person, gain their trust and and tailor the treatment to what motivates them, their goals. You know, we're, you know, uh, as far as me and you and Mackenzie, occupational therapist, and that's a huge part of our, you know, education is, is meaningful activity. So find what's meaningful that way that, you know, hopefully they buy in and adhere to the program and modify the programs to what benefits the patient. It's not a cookie cutter design, you know, everybody's going to move at different pace. So remember that. And uh, don't be scared to, you know, reach out for ideas to anybody. You know, there's no shame in that. And like Philip said, there's so much to touch on this topic that we hope that you gain something from it. You know, something that you could take to the clinic next week. Um, That's pretty much it. How about you, Mackenzie? Yeah. uh, Just also to just taking part of uh, the mid carpal modes and how all that's moving as well. Uh, And don't forget about the neuro reed different techniques as well. Good, good. All right. So, Mackenzie, this next have some yeah, fun. This this next segment's called Five O'clock Walkover. So, Mackenzie, we're going to ask you some questions, <laughs> and you got to you know answer them as quickly as you can. All right. What, what's your favorite lazy weekend activity? Uh, watching football. I'll take that. I'll take that. Your Mississippi State, Mississippi. That, oh, that's it, no, Mississippi State. Okay. All right. Didn't you graduate from Ole Miss? University of Mississippi Medical Center. <clears throat> okay. Nomenclature. <laughs> splitting hairs. Go ahead, Bob. I'm sorry. All right, Mackenzie, what is the most Southern saying you've used? Oh, over yonder, maybe. Over yonder. <laughs> All right. How about you, Philip? Uh, hey, hold that wheelbarrow. Make sure it doesn't tump over. Tump over. <laughs> So mine, I refer here in Savannah, I'll say, I'll say, here comes a frog strangler. And people look at me like I'm crazy, but to me, it doesn't make sense to say it's going to rain cats and dogs, but if it rains hard enough to strangle a frog, you know, that's doing something. So big storms coming up. Here comes frog strangler. All right. Um, What no fear activity did you do growing up that you'd never do now? uh, Slide down a hill in like a, box <laughs> Philip um yeah, yeah I don't know you know I, I still have to stay pretty active um you know I'm not gonna go down a gutter anymore to go get some balls uh, I'll go to the store and buy another one <laughs> yeah. um yeah I've gotten 20 25 feet down some tubes that I can freak out about now but didn't seem to bother me then I, it's just not happening we, I, I'm from a small town and we've done some pretty uh, not smart things. And one was actually, we would take an old car hood and hook it to the back of a truck and sled out in the field, not realizing if you came off that it could literally cut you in half, but um, scares me to death now. But then I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. So that's, that's one for me. Don't tell your kids about no, that. No, I won't. <laughs> All right. <laughs> last question. What is your favorite Easter candy? Cadbury eggs. Mm, chocolate or car- or the or the caramel or the what is the other the um uh, like, caramel like the caramel ones how about you philip yeah probably the same or that just the old chocolate bunnies that you know you finish up by the next uh, next easter because it's still in your 
freezer. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go with the Reese eggs. Uh, Those yeah. are my go-to's. <laughs> I use the I use the peeps for door stops. My mom seems to get them to me for every year. It's kind of a joke now, but I I, I do not like them. Well, I wish I'd have known yeah. that. I would have said peeps. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mackenzie, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, appreciate uh, we really it, appreciate it. Um, hope that you learned something. Hope that you know everybody out there got something. I definitely took something home from it. Um, you know, I want to thank everybody for joining us, and that's a wrap for another episode of Getting Handsy. We'll see y'all next time.